Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in the virtual cupboard with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today, all the way from San Francisco, is the entirely legendary Joel Selvin. <laughs> Welcome, Joel. Greetings, Earthlings. <laughs> it's great to see you on our screens, and great to be talking about your riveting new book, Hollywood Eden, subtitled Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise, which is all about Los Angeles pop and surf music in the early 60s, you know, life rock and roll before the Beatles. We've even managed to dig out an audio interview with Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean, especially for the occasion. We'll hear clips from that later. And sticking to the California theme, we'll talk a bit about Jack Nitsche, the featured artist on the new homepage. We'll also be saying goodbye to Malcolm Cecil, one of the true pioneers of electronic pop. But Joel, let's start by asking how you became a music writer in the first place. So I dropped out of Berkeley High School in the June of 1967, and that fall went to work as a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle. $55 a week and access to the guest list at the Fillmore. So I saw <laughs> Hendrix and Cream and, you know, you name it. I was going out six nights a week, and I loved the newspaper world. I mean, I walked in there the first day, having been told all my life that I didn't fit in. And I mean, I always wondered, fit into what? But um, I, I walked into this room, and I saw a room full of people that I instinctively understood didn't fit in. So I just loved the newspaper racket, and I loved this rock thing. And it's 1968 when I got loose from being a copy boy, and I just couldn't think of anything I wanted to do but write about rock bands. I came back to the Chronicle by like 1970, and by 1972, I had a staff position there, and I spent the next 36 years of what we might laughingly call my adult life <laughs> covering the rock scene for the page of the paper. Wonderful. What was the first piece you wrote, Joel? <laughs> it was my habit to visit the office after uh, I had left as a copy boy and, you know, hang out. And the date book editor was an older lady named Judy Stone, a very irascible gal, the younger sister of I.F. Stone. If oh. you, yeah. So yeah, Judy was short-staffed. It was during the summer. And I walked by and she said, Joel, are you doing anything tonight? And I said, well, no. She goes, I want you to cover Sergio Franchi and Myron Cohen at the Circle Star Theater. Sergio Franchi and Myron Cohen was the beginning of my career as a reviewer at the Chronicle. That's great. So it wasn't cream at the Fillmore. <laughs> you know, somebody else was going to get that assignment. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, Joel, you've <laughs> obviously, you were based in San Francisco. You've written so brilliantly about the music history of, of San Francisco. I have here the copy of Summer of Love that I reviewed for Mojo. It's, that, it's such a stunning account of the Summer of Love, of Haight-Ashbury, of Grateful Dead, Quicksilver, Jefferson Airplane, Janice, you name it. It's just a definitive work. It'll never be topped. 
you were also, though, very, you were interested in early age in Southern California. I mean, you write at the very end of the new book, Hollywood Eden, you talk about the first time you went down, which by my calculation was 1960, was your right. approximately your first visit yeah. to Los Angeles. And you later wrote a biography of Ricky Nelson, and you've always written beautifully about Southern as well as Northern California. So it got under your skin. And in a sense, this book takes you back to that kind of starry-eyed experience, doesn't it? Well, I've never engaged in that sort of archetypical Northern versus Southern California thing. I've always seen... California as the nation state, and you know we we were all brothers and and sisters in in California, and it was us against them. So, <laughs> yeah, Southern California has always held a tremendous amount of appeal to me. Like you say, I went there first when I was ten years old. Now it's nineteen sixty. There was no smog. There was sunny skies. There was palm trees. There were movie stars. My uncle got me into the uh, studio. I watched him film West Side Story for a couple of hours. I mean, oh, it was unbelievable. And uh, everything that I ever uh, thought it would be. And, and, of course, like everybody else in this country, I had been primed to visit Disneyland. And ever since Disneyland opened in 1955, Walt just mercilessly pimped that thing on his TV show, whatever it was called, Walt Disney Presents the Wonderful World of Disney. But that was always one of the most popular TV shows of the week. And you you just stared goggle-eyed at the TV looking at this goofy, pardon the expression, amusement park they built in the strawberry fields of Anaheim. I mean, every every kid in the country wanted to be there. It was no disappointment. Right, right. So what prompted you to tell this story about this fascinating group of people who all kind of interconnected in various ways, and quite a few of them had in common the fact that they graduated from University High in 1958? That's such a big thing in America, isn't it? And the the high schools producing this kind of generation of budding pop stars. What was the kind of moment when you thought, this is, this is a great story, I want to tell the story of Jan and Dean and Brian Wilson and Terry Melcher and Bruce Johnston and all these people, and Nancy Sinatra and Jill Gibbs? I'm not sure. We, we never really know where our books come from, do we, Barney? No, sir. <laughs> but I have a feeling that it was when my friend Kevin Walsh, who collects such things, showed me the University High Yearbook. Mm-hmm. And I saw who was there, what it looked like, and what an extraordinary little convergence that was. So in the book, we follow Jan, Dean, Nancy Sinatra, Bruce Johnston, Kim Fowley, Sandy Nelson. (laughs) They're all in the same high school class. But you know who else is in that class? There's a girl named Kathy Koner, whose father wrote a book about her being at the beach called Gidget. Pat O'Neill, who would use his middle name in his acting career, Ryan. James Bruderlin. James Bruderlin would change his name to James Brolin. James Bruderlin was a baron. He was a baron. He was up there in the garage with Jan and all those guys and hanging out. He knew all that stuff. So, And, and, I mean, that's not even the end of it. it. University High served a very privileged geographic area of Brentwood, Bel Air, and then some of the more middle-class kids from the flatlands, sort of where 
Los Angeles International Airport is, a little bit north of that. So Dean, whose family lived down by what's now Century City, he qualified. But Jan, whose father was Howard Hughes's right-hand man and lived at the absolute top of the hill in Bel Air, you know, they went to the same high school. And you're right, Barney. High school is this quintessential American experience. And it's not what you learn in the classroom. It's what you learn in the milieu, in the context. You become socialized, politicized, sexualized, all the things that transition you from childhood to adulthood transpire over those three years. And I think the American high school experience is is really the key to that whole development. Yes. I don't think we really have a similar thing here. I don't know what you guys feel. No, I don't think so. I don't think no. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the equivalent, the equivalent here is very different context, but the, the public school thing, like the Eaton gang, when half the current cabinet front bench went to Eaton, that, that's our equivalent, and it's a mm. very different beast. It is. It's certainly not a universal experience. Barney, are you, for- <laughs> are you forgetting that I attended London County Council Secondary Moderns? Yes, we are forgetting. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Where, how, etc. Which ones? I went to Barnsbury Schools for Boys off Holloway Road, mm-hmm. and then uh, later Kiniston School for Boys off Finchley Road. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were living at the time, this would be 1962, in a Muse cottage off Abbey Road. And I used to walk from my uh, school home past this recording studio, years later, there would be a (laughs) photograph taken in that zebra crossing, and I knew it so well, I walked across that every day. That's amazing. You can hardly drive past there now. There are so many tourists standing on that fucking zebra crossing, photographing themselves. (laughs) I I think naming a DLR station Abbey Road was actually a stroke of genius on (laughs) TFL's part as far as alleviating the traffic problems because it's about as far from actual Abbey Road as you could possibly be. And yet the station is called Abbey Road. I think it's brilliant. Well, Joel, we'll have to have you back for another episode to talk about your London years because we can't really go down that... that, uh, Can't can't take that diversion right now. I really love the book. I mean, I found it fascinating. Yeah, me too. You, me too. You, yeah, good, good. That's fine. I mean, it, do you just tell the story so rivetingly in such a kind of direct and straightforward way, and these people really come alive. I mean, Jan Berry is a fascinating figure. You said in an interview with Bob Ruggiero in Houston that I don't think Jan was a was a good person. And this sort of comes across <laughs> to some degree, but he is fascinating, isn't he? I mean, he's he does extraordinary things. He's the music guy in that, those two, isn't he? I mean, Dean was obviously yes. a sweetheart, but Dean was quite happy to resign and become a graphic designer at the end, you know. Jan taught Brian Wilson stuff, isn't that right? When Brian went into the studio for the first time, Jan Berry was already a grizzled veteran of recording. Yeah, yeah. He'd been making records since... 1958 in his garage in his garage but you know he, he it all started when he goes into united recording and and joe lubin hears the tape so you know he'd been around hollywood recording studios for what four years before brian had even and he'd had a half a dozen records and those records may not have been big hits on the national charts but they were smash hits on los angeles radio even and, and up in san francisco yeah, i yeah. mean 
Clementine was as big a record on San Francisco radio by Jan and Dean as it was by anybody, uh, by the Bobby Darren version. Oh my I mean, he also explained musical stuff to Brian in terms of like how harmonies could be put together. I mean, you know, when, when you think of Brian as this great king of recorded harmony vocals, that Jan had a lot to do with that too, which is really something. I, I, I think less about harmonies, which Brian was very, very familiar with, than mm-hmm. recording technology and overdubbing. That was something that Brian hadn't thought about. Brian also hadn't thought about using session musicians. Jan introduced Brian to the idea of, you know, Hal Blaine and Steve Douglas and the guys that were on his records. So there was that. And Brian was in on all the Jan and Dean sessions, uh, starting with Surf City. Actually, before Surf City, they did a session with the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. But Surf City, which was the first number one record out of this gang, as Brian, Jan, and two guys from University High that were in a singing group called the Gents. They were Latinos. And the only person that didn't sing on that was Dean. And I got no idea why, but he certainly wasn't necessary. And those four vocalists sing it three times each. So there's 12 vocals stacked up on top of each other. And when that record opens, it opens with that vocal line, two girls for every boy. It's just a trumpet blast of vocals. And that's way beyond what was going on in places like New York and Chicago and New Orleans. The other centers of recording were still rooted in a more conventional type of approach. In Los Angeles, like all of California, everything was brand new and the sky was the limit and, you know, whatever worked was good. California was where the land of reinvention. And that was what it was all about, about moving to California, living in California, being in California. And likewise, this whole recording scene just revolved around these acts. It went from a very, you know, staid and ossified old school that had developed around the movie industry and the sort of semi-classical composers that Mm -hmm. wrote those soundtracks, like Randy Newman's uncles, to this rock and roll-oriented group of young Turks, session musicians who showed up in Levi's and T-shirts, not coats and ties. And they just rewrote the rules of how the studio was to be conducted. It was a pretty white scene, wasn't it? I mean, Los Angeles had had a fairly strong tradition of black music and South Central specialty records and all that sort of stuff. But outside of one or two like Earl Palmer, it was a pretty, pretty white scene this we're talking about. In fact, it kind of, you know, swamped the thriving rhythm and blues scene in Los Angeles mm-hmm. because there was quite a bit of that going on, not just Johnny Otis and, and who'd you mention, I forget, but there was the Bahari brothers at Kenton Modern, no yeah. specialty, especially it was pretty much a gospel label with, you know, slight aberrations later, but, you know, Bumps Blackwell was a, a, a real, yeah, uh, Bumps Blackwell was an important figure in specialties uh, thing, and, and there were other really important musicians like Ernie Freeman, who was, um, had hits 
instrumental hits of his own, but he was a, a ranger conductor that could marshal the R&B sound behind Sam Cooke records and, and other, others of that sort. Uh, the Bahari brothers, Kent Modern RPM, they, they did B.B. King, Ike and Tina Turner. They had mm-hmm. tons of that stuff. Maxwell Davis was kind of their house arranger. And there was a little back and forth between the R&B scene and the white scene, a little bit. That was what the young white musicians aspired to. That was the music they were listening to. Well, I think that's really important, yeah. I mean, you tell this incredible story, Joel, of a young Bruce Johnston going to Dolphins of Hollywood. (laughs) And and being present at witnessing the murder of John Dolphin by a very peeved songwriter who was on John Dolphin's books i mean extraordinary when you i mean i've only met bruce johnston once and to kind of imagine him in that sort of scenario is quite difficult you know i remember these tasseled loafers that bruce was wearing (laughs) he was sort of immaculate santa barbara sort of millionaire at this point but here he is like besotted with r&b and doo-wop and stuff and he's going down and buying records at dolphins so there's There's an interesting kind of interchange there, isn't there? Even if it's a story of white privilege. Bruce, uh, 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 his father started a nationwide drugstore chain called Rexall. Huge. Huge, just gigantic. And he lived next door in Bel Air to Burt Lancaster. That's who his next door neighbor was growing up. So, yeah, he comes from the absolute, you know, epitome of, of privilege in, in Los Angeles, but like everybody else at his age, he was totally smitten with this kind of music that came to be called doo-wop. And, and you know, it's hard for us from this vantage point to, to hear the novelty, the, the, the foreignness, the exoticness of those records. But in 1954-55 in you know, the Bel Air Hills, uh, something like Get a Job by the Silhouettes was just the most, it was beamed in from outer space. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think it's really interesting that you were saying that in terms of recording techniques, they were way ahead of, say, New York when they started recording, layering vocals, but that the initial kind of spark comes partly from New York groups like the Chords and how that kind of makes its way across the country and sparks something that is really obviously different, but it seems so unlikely as a thing to make it all the way across. I don't know. The United States in 1958 was a much different country than the one you guys know. Much like, by the way, Hmm. England is extremely mm. different. Now, when I was in England in, in 61, there were still bombed out houses on every oh, block yeah. in London. Yes. The food oh, yeah. still was child abuse. And, <laughs> and the water still ran out of the taps looking orange. Yeah. So in the United States in 1958, there was regions. And the regions had distinct cultures, geography, everything was was centered around Mm. where you lived. So the idea of of the New York stuff, the New York sound breaking loose in Los Angeles was a factor of this growing phenomenon of radio disc jockeys. Mm. And every city 
started having these rhythm and blues shows. They weren't even rhythm and blues shows when they started. They were called race music. But by 1953, those records were beginning to be a factor. And they're beginning to be a factor with, like, the Orioles crying in the chapel. And soon the sound was being echoed out of Los Angeles with, uh, like, the Penguins, who were a Los Angeles group, uh, Earth Angel. And the whole thing began as a cultural movement amongst the African-American community, but it found its resonance in the white fans, the white music fans. And and we're talking about John Dolphin and his record store down in south-central Los Angeles. In 1955, white kids started showing up there to buy the rhythm and blues records, and it just it, it knocked John Dolphin for a loop. You know, what are they doing here? Uh, by It became a thing. <laughs> Let's go down to Dolphins and buy some of these records. And in 1956, somebody took Elvis down there. That was the you know the pilgrimage. Yeah. You went to Dolphins to buy these black records, which you couldn't get in Hollywood. No, Wallach's Music City didn't carry them. No. Yeah. yeah, no. I mean, another Angelino who went down there and of course knew Bruce Johnston well, and a lot of the people in your book was was the notorious Kim Fowley. <laughs> who sort of sticks out like a sore thumb in this in this kind of when you think of him like Jan Berry, he looks like almost like a kind of Greek god in terms of good looks and sun. T- he's that ultimate Californian ideal of a kind of good looking guy on a surfboard. And then there's Kim, sort of six foot five, <laughs> self described sort of Ichabod Crane, but such a vital figure in your in your narrative, the way he, you call him a bottom feeder, which I'm sure glad he's not alive to to read that. I mean, you know, I know that, I mean, you say no one liked Kim except Bruce Johnston. I mean, as I did kind of like Kim, I sort of feel like I shouldn't have liked him, but I saw there was something there. There was a sadness, actually. There was, there was real trauma and sadness in Kim Fowley and absolute intellectual brilliance as well. He had such a fantastic sort of way of operating and hustling in L.A., didn't he? I mean, tell us how Kim fits into this sort of Aryan story. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Fowley's like a character out of a novel. And and Barney, you've written extensively about Fowley, and you you know what sort of a character he is. He just comes alive on the page. But let me ask you, do you believe Jackie Fox? I'd probably best not to get into that. I believe her. You know, I believe her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. when someone says that kind of thing, you really have to take it seriously. Of course, yes, of yes. course. I mean, look, I only learned about any of this stuff after Kim had died. So there's a kind of before and after. He had an extraordinary take on the Los Angeles pop industry, which, which again comes alive in your book so well. Bali was a character of major proportions. Just ask him, right? And he forced himself on writers much as he did on women. He found me where I was staying in Los Angeles working on the Ricky Nelson book when he was living in West Virginia. I didn't know the guy, from you know, but he found me because he wanted to be in that book. He wanted to put his footprint in that sand. And he's a uniquely Hollywood character, isn't he? Because uh, Fowley, yeah, son of a B movie actor, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, his dad did a hundred movies, and nobody remembers him today. But I don't think he could have survived in New York or London, because he was really kind of a jive cat. 
You know, there's he he didn't really write songs. He co-wrote songs. He didn't produce records. You know, he co-produced records. He 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 co-published. He 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 now had no real apparent talent, but he was always on the edge of things, putting stuff together and using other people to advance himself. You know, he maintained that relationship with Bruce Johnston all their lives and, you know, probably treated Bruce a little differently than he treated other people since Bruce was in a position to be helpful and it was up the ladder from Fowley. And that was the sort of what guy Fowley was. He was a crassly, he was flagrantly self-involved and, like you say, just the ultimate Hollywood hustler. And yeah, I think some of his character was sort of repugnant and he pissed people off and he got Lou Adler to like just spend a lifetime screwing him over. They hated each other, didn't they? Hated each other. It's quite interesting, though, that for such a hustler, he was a massive failure as well. I mean, very few of the things he touched turned to gold. Yes. He was really close to a lot of stuff, you know, and and missed chances. A lot of those chances missed because people hated him so much. And as you say in the book, that, that, you know, Lou Adler says, well, I'll have these people before he can get hold of them, pretty much about the mamas and papas. Absolutely right. I mean, the the thing that haunts me is I remember Nick Vinay, who makes an appearance in your book, Joel, saying essentially that it it was Kim that directed him towards the Pendle tones as they then were, but then became the Beach Boys. In other words, the Beach Boys might might not have happened. The whole surfing thing that is a that is a strong motif throughout your book, of course, might not have happened without Fowley. But he didn't he didn't really capitalize on his own intuitions. Whereas Adler, Adler did. Adler was just cannier and smarter and stole the mummers and papas out from under Kim's nose. It's fascinating. I remember interviewing Lou and he said, oh, Kim Fowley. I remember he came into my office once with a briefcase and, and, and looking very important. And I said, what's in the briefcase, Kim? And he opened it. And there was nothing in there at all. <laughs> <laughs> that, for Lou, that just summed up Kim Fowley as, yeah. a, as a kind of entrepreneur. <laughs> but you write about Terry Melcher as well, of course, you know, who's fascinating and, you know, who ends up working at Columbia and producing the birds. There's so many interesting things that Nancy Sinatra, the stories about Nancy and her dad are very interesting too. You write about Spectre. It's everything that kind of leads up. It's everything before the sunset strip kind of moment, isn't it really? It's these native Angelinos making little records that seem very corny and quaint to us now, but that, in a sense, create what you call the myth of California, the myth of, of surf culture, and these, these sort of blonde kids disporting themselves in the sun. It's very quaint and corny, but it's such an important part of California. Oh, the records are almost the least important part of this whole story. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, you know... I, well, to, apart from the be- the great Beach Boys records that Brian Men made. To me, the apex of the whole thing was Good Vibrations. And that all of this leads up to that piece of work, which is arguably the greatest pop record ever made. I'm picking up Good Vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up Good Vibrations. 
And, of course, Brian was never able to come anywhere near close to doing anything like that again. He was, you know, a, a spawned salmon after that. But you can see a kind of direct line from baby talk mm-hmm. all the way through these experimental records that lead to good vibrations. Inspectors are part of that, and Jan and Dean are a part of that, and Terry and Bruce. And- well, well, it's interesting you say Spectre, but Spectre actually was suffered from the same thing. And, and you describe it brilliantly in your book, the River Deep Mountain High sessions, and just the, the, the amount of effort and everything and to produce this absolute masterpiece. And you say in the book that it's like everyone in the room senses that they'll never do anything better than that, that that's it. They've hit their, their peak. And you could say the same about Brian Wilson with Good Vibrations. And so those two records were absolutely the peak of that whole school of record making. And there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that we'd found this Dean Torrance audio interview, which just chimes so perfectly with everything we're talking about. So, Mark, maybe you would be kind enough to to intro this interview. Yeah, yeah. It's um, John Tobler interviewing Dean Torrance in November '73. So it's 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 quite old, and it's it's a typical Tobler interview in that Tobler's really interested in the history. That's really what he wants to know, and he goes right back to them meeting in high school, exactly the sort of thing that you're writing about in the book. Sandy Nelson as a person that they sort of was part of their, their scene, very interesting guy. Everyone seems to have car crashes. Uh, Sandy Nelson, uh, Dan Berry, yeah. you know, Baby Talk, the first single, Lou Adler becoming their manager, Herb Albert producing. And then he also talks, we've got a clip here about the LA indie labels, which is is. Very interesting, because, again, you talk about that at great length in deal in your book, that outside of a couple of the majors, Capital, Liberty, is that these were all independent labels. Jasper, let's have a listen to that clip. There weren't that many hot record companies on the coast at the time. Most all the biggies were on the East Coast. Yeah. So it was hard to find a, a, a contemporary for those days rock and roll uh, orientated label. And there was a few of the majors out here, but majors weren't into rock and roll. They were in, still into middle of the road uh, artists. Like Guy Mitchell. Yeah, yeah, and Sinatra. And, uh, and yeah. all those people were having hit records at the time. Which means to say she loves me. A lot of little indie labels, including Marty Melcher's label, Arwin, that you you write about. And again, you you also write about the studios, because a lot of these studios are set up, as you said, to do soundtrack work. But there were a lot of recording studios in Los Angeles. For a a non-music city, it had a lot of places you could go and make records. Also, I mean, it's not mentioned there, but the Ampex Corporation are just up the road, so they're getting some of the best technology before it even got to New York, multi-track recorders and so on and so forth. Anyway, back to this this interview. talks about the evolution of surf music and the association of the Beach Boys, which we described, and the surfboards, the cars, the fashions. Well, let's listen to that clip, The Birth of Surf. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, surf with me. Surfing by the Beach Boys was a very primitive record, which sounded more like Baby Talk than any one of their <laughs> records. Yeah, it sounded more like the stuff we were doing. That came out. We heard it. We liked it. 
we weren't afraid of it at all, particularly. Matter of fact, I, I think we sensed that it was going to help, mm. uh, that it would be good for the business. It would be good to have more California people oh, yeah, Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, surf. So, so you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's really interesting. I, I like Dean Torrance sounds really kind of rather nice in this interview. I kind of I I warm to him as an individual. I mean, Joel, in your experience with him, what did you think about? What did you feel about about Dean Torrance? He's a a classic Southern California character type, passive, regressive. <laughs> I think the 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 colloquial term is laid back (laughs) and you got to see dean as somebody who had minimal skills in as a musician uh but he was capable of putting up with the kind of overbearing personality and abusive behavior of jan barry because he got to buy a new car every couple years (laughs) that literally is how he saw it And uh, they're very much like an old comedy team. They were uh, big admirers of Laurel and Hardy, but they're really the Sunshine Boys, you know, that uh, Neil Simon thing. They were not friends. They were friendly, but I spent a lot of time with Jill Gibson, Jan's girlfriend, who uh, and they, and they lived together through this whole period. She says Dean never visited at their home. Never. Sure. So the relationship... They didn't love each other. The relationship that Dean accepted is an indication of of just what kind of character he was, this get-along-to-go-along guy. Uh, And he's very much that way to this day. He's got all these sort of secret resentments and all these sort of peculiar agendas. And if you don't think that's so, read his book... It's like a <laughs> fantasy. Wow. Really? That's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he, he's interesting. He talks about how he, he ended up basically being one of the lead singers on the Beach Boys, Barbara Ann, that how the, they and the Beach Boys constantly wanted to work together. And you talk about this quite a lot in the book, and um, was stymied by the, their record labels who weren't, weren't having it. Signing with Liberty, his own disillusion with the music business. He didn't like the business he was in. Jan's accident, he briefly touches on. Talks about going back to school, trained to be a graphic designer, setting up Kitty Hawk graphics, which went on to do countless album sleeves, including Grammy-winning album sleeves. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, then sort of trying to get back into it with the legendary Masked Surfers album with Terry Melcher and Bruce Johnston. It's a good listen, this. I mean, I, I was reading your book at the same time as doing this interview, you could see the holes that he was leaving in the story. <laughs> you know, he couldn't, yeah. ha- he couldn't handle the hospital. Right. He came once, maybe twice. Yeah. And he was out of there. He yeah. could, he couldn't hang. Uh, whereas Hal yeah, Blaine was there all the time. Yeah, Lou, yeah. Lou Adler yeah. was there almost every day at that exact time. Monday, Monday was the number one record in the country. And he had negotiated the sale of his record company to ABC right mm-hmm. at the same exact time. Yet he could find a way to be in that hospital room every day. So amazing. completely different level of devotion to this guy from Dean and Lou Adler, who you wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of uh, personal sure. devotion from. He's not the warm, cuddly guy that you know. 
<laughs> that that other might be. <laughs> but yeah, that uh, that that was yeah. definitely Adler was really he was there all the time. We're going to play another clip from the this the end of the podcast, but it's a very interesting and quite detailed listen. It's an hour and a half long, so there's a lot of stuff in there. And as you say, fascinating to listen to it alongside the book. Exactly. You know, to kind of have that voice, which is obviously strongly present in the book as well, to have it in a real sense, a historical sense. It's, it's again, as you say, Mark, the gaps, the differences, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Joel, we're featuring three sort of vaguely relevant pieces of yours on the homepage to tie in with the publication of Hollywood Eden. And one of them is about... It's a review of David Leaf's book about the Beach Boys from 1978, which also uses the term California myth. There's a, a nice little interview with Darlene Love, which touches on Spectre. But the one I wanted to mention most was an interview you did with Lenny Warrenka in uh, 1995. I'd forgotten because, that I had done that. I saw that. You okay. posted that. I did, if you'd asked me if I'd done a, a piece on Lenny Warrenka, I said, no, no. But that was a pretty good little piece. <laughs> well, it's a great little piece. Yeah, narrow and, focus. I mean, Mark and I are sort of, uh, I, oh, I think I can speak for Mark. You know, we're both kind of Warnocker obsessives. We're fascinated by, yeah. by that time and place and that label, Warner Reprise. So it's a great piece. He's just about to leave Warner's after many, many years. Now, Lenny does appear in your book as like a kid because <laughs> uh, he was a kid, wasn't he? I mean, he was the son of the founder of Liberty Records so another and another native Angelina. Now, this is a slightly – I mean, Lenny wasn't kind of involved in with sort of Jan and Dean or the Beach Boys at this point. It was a new – it was the next chapter of, of kind of Los Angeles, wasn't it? You know, in terms of the first records he produced for for Warners, and you talk about them in this piece, Randy Newman, Ry Cooder, and the Everly Brothers Roots album. Yeah, that turned out to be sort of a, a, a trifecta that, that was the pivot point out there in Burbank. And that article focused on that. I, I, I enjoyed revisiting it. It's like, no, that was listening to Lenny talk about that. You could see where the seeds of the whole Warner Brothers philosophy and attitude was were born right in those three records. And they're very Los Angeles-oriented records. They're, they're, they're post-Beach Boys era, but that's the beginning of that whole sort of Warner Brothers thing. Along with Van Dyke Parks's song cycle, mm-hmm. which is incredibly important. And, I mean, Lenny didn't produce that but yeah I and mean, we'll talk briefly about that later when we go through the stuff that's new in the library because one of the pieces is this marvelous richard goldstein interview with van dyke parks from the new york times in 68 van dyke parks i can't say enough about that but barney you know hanging out with van dyke parks is like having lunch with mark twain <laughs> yeah, especially if he's wearing dungarees, which he often is. He's just he's the most the dearest, verbal... sweetest, and most brilliant man, isn't he? He just is such a sweetheart and, and like, one of the cleverest people you'll ever meet in your and, life. And he's maintained that southern accent so well down the years. <laughs> Beautifully. <you know? laughs> so there's Van Dyke to look forward to. Um, but also, I, we can segue from this into Jack Nietzsche, who's the featured artist on the homepage. And the reason for this is that there's a little label called Hanky Panky Records, which is releasing an album called The Reprise Singles, 1963 to 65, which is basically, you know, Jack's early stuff when he when he was you know he had a hit with the Lonely Surfer so even he had a a surf record even though I don't suppose Jack Nietzsche ever surfed in his life. 
I thought it was an opportunity to to talk just briefly about Nietzsche as this sort of part of the kind of dark side of California pop dream, this this very strange, enigmatic, troubled fellow who I do think musically was absolutely brilliant. I mean, you look at the very different things he did between the early 60s and, you know, right to the end. I mean, the Neville Brothers album, you know, the people he worked with, are you a fan of Jack's? You, I mean, you, and one of the pieces is by you. I should hasten to add, as an interview you did with 78, he's about to fly to London to produce Graham Parker's Squeezing Out Sparks. And he's looking for his a really girlfriend. interesting time to catch him. Yeah, and he's looking for his girlfriend. Do you know where she is? He kept saying, yes, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then we get into some, we get in some very murky waters, do we not? With, no, and it's again. Nodgris thing. I knew yeah. Jack well. He was very close friend with friends of mine in the Do-Rocks, Scott Matthews and Ron Nagel. Uh, Jack always said that the Ron Nagel solo album was the favorite record that he ever produced. Okay. So, you know, Jack's something special. Another thing I did once, Barney, and you, you guys can try this, is I put together a mixtape, as they call them, of Rolling Stones records that featured Jack Nietzsche. And it is a whole different band with Jack Nietzsche in them. It's Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby. It's Let's Spend the Night Together. It's It's got these propulsive undercurrents that they just don't, couldn't find with, with uh, Stu or any of their other keyboard players. He really lights up the band. And, of course, I don't think there's a Spectre sound without Jack Nietzsche. And there is a Spectre uh-huh. sound without Spectre. If Jack Nietzsche's on, check out Jackie DeShannon when you walk in the room. Yeah, yeah. So many great records. I mean, the third piece on Jack that we're featuring is is basically Andrew Lou Goldham talking precisely about what you just mentioned, Joel, which is the impact that he had on the Stones. And they met him, I think, for the first time in Los Angeles in 1964 because they knew he was cool and they knew, you know, Oldham obviously knew about Spectre. And so... You know, Jack is all over Aftermath, you know, and Andrew talks particularly about, he says, he was, I was listening to I Am Waiting from Aftermath just the other day, and that's Nietzsche all over that record, you know, the harpsichords and stuff. And he mentions, obviously, Jack's work with Neil Young being part of the Straight Gators. So many, so many interesting and different things that he did. Actually, on the, on the subject of the Stones and the Beach Boys from your book, there's that marvellous tale of, Brian Wilson was invited down to the Stones recording session. And that's like, there's girls and there's drugs and there's booze. Yes. And completely the opposite to anything that would happen on a Beach Boys session. It's such a good story. <laughs> yeah, Brian was, mi- he was mixing good vibrations the next night. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah. Yeah. boing, boing. Yeah, by himself with an engineer and tape hop. There's Fantastic. a quote, from the, the first piece is from, Really, I mean, a really early piece on Nietzsche, which is when he comes to London in the, the I guess it's September 64, and David Griffiths of Record Mirror interviews him, and he says of, of Nietzsche, he's a paradox who is shy. He doesn't like the limelight or crowded places, yet he wears amazingly flamboyant clothes, dark glasses, and Beatles-style hair length. I've been wearing long hair with a fringe for seven years, says Nietzsche. When the Beatles became became famous, I found I was in fashion, although I'm much more noticeable in America than here. When I saw the Stones, 
I grew my hair even longer. <laughs> so he's at the cutting edge of long hair popping off. I am waiting. I am waiting. But I mean, Oldham also. I mean, Oldham finishes up his piece, which is which is just after David Dalton's interviewing him, just after Nietzsche dies, and he says of Jack, he just became a kind of maniac towards the end. I saw a picture of him taken in the Mayfair Hotel in New York, the August just before his demise, and he looked absolutely terrifying. I think he did become pretty terrifying, didn't he? I mean, he was he was a, a lunatic. There's a terrifying piece of footage of him that appeared on a rather loathsome American television show that used police footage of arrests. And he is filmed being arrested on a a drunk driving charge. It's probably up on YouTube, isn't everything? It was just terrifying. He is an absolute madman and and, and, uh, completely violent and physically crazed, and the cops have to restrain him. And it's all there on camera. It's really, truly embarrassing. Sure. Well, so anyway, that's Nietzsche, fascinating guy, and these are really interesting pieces. We have to sort of leave the world of Los Angeles and Hollywood, Babylon, and, you know, the surfing culture to talk briefly about Malcolm Cecil, who was one half of originally Tonto's expanding headband. Mark, just tell us a little bit about how important these two guys were, Margulif and Cecil. Well, it's extraordinary, really, because, you know, synthesizers were appearing in, in pop music in prog music in particular, but it was very much their alliance with Stevie Wonder when Stevie Wonder was spreading his wings and producing his great albums. They effectively co-produced at least two or three of those records. I couldn't tell you offhand the titles because I'm no good that way. Marvellous stuff. Music of my mind. Yeah, music of my mind, talking book, book and innovation. That's right. I mean, that's a pretty good three-play. That's a fantastic free play. And I think you can actually say that the moment Stevie stopped working with these guys, he became a great deal less interesting in a hurry. But that's another story. That's because they went over to work with the Isley brothers. Exactly. I was was going to come on to that. Three plus three. It's a a great record that they did with them. Very interesting. The Tonto's expanding headband stuff is kind of, is a curiosity. I think you'd probably describe as not much more than that. But we've got a review of that album, Mark, that you added some time ago. Yeah. By one Dick Meadows, who I can't help feeling must be an alias or pseudonym for somebody. Was there really somebody called Dick Meadows? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I think he did exist. (laughs) So it's a review from 71 when the the album Zero Time came out. And then the other two pieces, somewhat inevitably, are more Stevie-centric. But they do really make clear how you know, how much they had to do with, with the sound of those records. I mean, there's no, you sort of have this idea that Stevie was, was playing some of this stuff himself, but the truth is he was just telling them what he wanted and they were really playing. Not, 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 ev- not that even stuff. that. Yeah. Do you know the story yeah. that Malcolm told about uh, meeting Stevie? Cause I did, I did this for Mojo. It, it, it's a, I uh, talked to both those guys in great detail. It's Saturday right. morning. He's on the lives on the third floor in his uh, where they have a studio and the whole Moog setup. And somebody rings the bell, but it's an office building, so he really, you know, he leans out the window and looks down on the street and he sees some guy in a green jumpsuit. So he goes down and answers the door. It's Stevie Wonder. He's got the Tonto's album under his arm. And he says, you did this on this. I want to see this machine. 
uh, he wants to see it, right? So they take him <laughs> up there, and he tells them the story. It's Saturday. Thursday, he had a birthday party for his 21st birthday in Detroit, thrown for him by Barry Gordy. He woke up Friday morning and flew to New York. He shot these guys out and shows up Saturday morning. He signed a record deal for a publishing deal with Barry Gordy when he was 18 and shortly thereafter realized it was a terrible deal and he stopped writing songs on paper and wrote them in his head. And he wanted to record with these guys right now. So Margolov comes down. It's Saturday, like, you know, lunchtime. And they come out of the studio Monday morning with 15 songs done. All of Music of My Mind, most of Talking Book. Wow. And that's how they started. It's amazing. Well, I mean, that is a great story. What a weekend. It's also how Stevie Wonder was himself a good enough musician to like lay down all the drum tracks himself. So just basically the three of them could do the whole thing. They brought in a couple of guys to put a guitar overdub here, a, a horn overdub yeah, sure. here. But no, it was those guys. Really those and you know the story about superstition. Yeah. So, so they took a lot of time to, to dial in these machines. And they sure. did it. And they did it under headphones. Margolov and Cecil. They'd be out there, so there'd be long periods of silence. And they brought Beck in to put a guitar lick on something. And he was under the impression that he was going to come out of this with a new Stevie Wonder song for his next album. Yeah, yeah. And Beck is sitting at the drums while these guys are under the headphones, and he starts doing this like thump, thow, thump. Thou. And Stevie's sitting at the keyboard. He goes, and while they are under the headphones, write superstition. Amazing. They come out of the <laughs> headphones, and there's Jeff Beck on drums and Stevie playing that keyboard. And you go back and listen to that record again, you realize that's not Stevie Wonder's drum beat. That's a rock guitar player's drum beat. Stevie Wonder wrote Tell Me Something Good for Rufus in 10 minutes. He walked past the studio. Hey, Stevie, come and write <laughs> us a song. He sat down for 10 minutes, wrote one of the greatest funk songs of the lot. You know, I Absolutely. mean, it's, it's amazing. Amazing. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Jerry Lieber told me that it took as long to write Kansas City as it does to sing it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to just quote from a great, so one of the two Stevie pieces that I referred to is by David Stubbs, former podcast guest and friend of Rockback Pages. It's a great Pages. piece, this. I really, really enjoyed reading and just, it. And uh, just wanted to, to read this because I think it really does, as Jasper would say, speak to what is so great about Stevie's relationship with electronic instruments. The synthesizer arrangements on these songs, far from rendering them plastic, cold, or gimmicky, only intensified their aching beauty. On Superwoman, whose guarded optimism is followed by a sequel of romantic disappointment, every electronic keyboard note falls like a teardrop into a limpid pool of melancholy, while the ARP synth peals like a sad <laughs> siren. I think that's pretty nice because there's a great it's, sensuality it's great. in those in those in those tracks. You know, as as David intimates, you know, they they never sound like mechanical or no. sterile or robotic. They're very human sounding in in an in yeah. ironic kind of way, you know. So Michael Cecil has left us and we owe him a lot, really. I mean, they did go on to do other things, but those Stevie records are extraordinary. Some of the greatest, you know, 
soul music of of that decade, I think. No, those guys really unleashed, unleashed Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Mark, it's time to talk about what's found its way into the library. I take it, Jasper, I don't have long. Is that fair to say? <laughs> <laughs> that is fair to say, uh, okay. I'm afraid. Uh, well, I mean, from last week, very swiftly, Maureen O'Grady, The Birds Have Flown, a Brave, 1965, and it's about the birds' disastrous first British tour where they've got terrible reviews. And she says, what went wrong with the birds' visit? At Fairfield Hall, Croydon, the fans hurled warmth and adoration, but the birds didn't give much back. And that's what you read in all the reviews. They just stood there and played. They weren't interested in putting on a show. Croydon? Yeah, the Fairfield Hall. Ah, I've been to Croydon. (laughs) (laughs) Bad luck. (laughs) Skipping through a few things which I won't talk about. Oh, well, it's great. In the New York Times in January 69, Bill Graham writes a letter of complaint about Michael Lydon's major feature on the the Jefferson Airplane and the whole San Francisco scene. He says... um, gives a basically accurate description of the film East West. There are several glaring errors and some unfair implications resulting from the quotes of unidentified observers, these are Bill Graham's words, who are unassailable in their convenient anonymity. We can pass over the rest of his one-sided selection of remarks by observers as too petty to contest, although Mr Lydon has used them out of context to support his cartoonish description of me as a raving Scrooge McDuck. Lydon, in his response to this, says, Mr. Graham raises no factual points of contention. I did not call him a raving Scrooge McDuck, but it's his right. That's Michael being sort of nice and restrained there. Joel, how well did you know Bill Graham? Oh, man. Uh, You know, he was a Chronicle subscriber, and he would call up after reading the headline and screaming at me. It took me 10 years to teach him that I didn't write the headlines. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't even get into your review. He just stopped at the yeah, headline. Yeah, he would just stop and, at the headline and, and pick up for. the phone. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a cantankerous old motherfucker, wasn't he? You know, Contentious, I mean, narcissistic. Uh, uh, bullying. Uh, bullying. Bullying. Greedy. Unethical. But? A liar. <laughs> Is there a but? Is there a but here? I, I, I'm not a fan. I, I really am not a fan. Uh, You're really not a fan. Uh-uh. Okay. No, he was an unethical guy that stole money from every artist he worked with and thought it was okay. funny, thought it was a game. Okay. He had this terrible right, refugee right. mentality. He was always had some grievance he was working, and it was all about him and, and everything. He thought he was the star, not the people on the stage. So, no, I'm not a big fan. And I had, I had to deal with him personally. A lot. You know, he thought yeah. I was the promotion department of Bill Graham Presents. I just wasn't on salary. Yeah, and sure. We came to no, a, lo- we came to a lot of uh, problems but, yeah. about that. <laughs> but he, he put on some fantastic shows. I mean, he really did. He put You know, uh, now you're talking about trains, trains running on time. Really. <laughs> okay. Sh- shall we move on in that no, case? No, here's the, here's the deal. Here's the deal, Mark. <laughs> Okay? okay, he was the imperialist. Right. He colonized the hippies. He took the natural resources and sent them out to the manufacturers. That's not a heroic venture. <laughs> 
you know, that, that's fair enough. And in, in a way, reading this article, because we have the Leiden article, original article on the site too, is that that was pretty much what Leiden was implying, yeah. which is what sent yeah. Bill Graham to such a fury. So <laughs> I will tell you, I saw Bill right after the Sex Pistols set backstage. And yeah. they've been throwing stuff on stage, and mostly they've been throwing coins to throw at mm. Johnny and the and the band and Sid and all that. And and Johnny Rotten had made a big thing out of picking up the coins at the front of the stage and snarling at the audience. I went backstage afterwards. Bill's had his pockets full of coins, and he jingled them. And he said, he, Johnny Rotten, he had his area of the stage I had mine. He picked up all the coins off the back of the stage. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, can, right, well, can we move on to Enemy in 1976? We can. And, uh, <laughs> and this is just amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a huge two-part Roy Carr interview with Phil Spector. Where the first part went in last week. The second part's going in this week. And it's a sort of report, but mostly an interview. And it's in this darkened room, only illuminated by a fish tank. Uh, this is, you know, like I said, it's 1976. It's Phil with his guns and his bodyguards, the whole, the full nine, nine yards. And, and Phil says things like, the thing that disturbs me is that almost everything written about me is in the form of an obituary. People about, write about me as though I was dead. Though he says, I still don't believe that there's anybody alive who can make records better than I can. How can they hate somebody whose records are filled, overflowing with so much love and not only love, but honesty? The last quote from him is, I should be more understood. It doesn't matter that I carry a gun, have bodyguards, or live in a fortified mansion. It's, it's deranged stuff. The second part, he claims that he produced all the Beatles records. I mean, literally all the Beatles albums. It's an extraordinary series. Okay, he says, who, going to talk about Jack Nitsche, who got off the plane when the Beatles arrived in, in New York? Myself and Jack Nitsche, because I've been producing their records back in England. You know, George <laughs> Martin was just an arranger. It's deranged shit. And it's 12,000 words of deranged shit. Brilliant. I really, I couldn't recommend it. You must have met Phil too, John. Oh, sure. Yeah. I had a, uh, a couple of phone conversations with him while he was in prison. His wife had... Did you? Yeah, his wife had gotten interested in having a book written. And my agent lined me up and I had the first conversation and I sent him a long memo. And uh, then we got back on the phone the second time. He wanted to know where I learned all this stuff. And I told him that I'd spent a lot of time with Jerry Lieber. And he said, oh, Jerry, he exaggerates. I produced all those Drifters records. <laughs> of course he did. You can't believe a word Jerry said. But wait, yeah, yeah. So, so then I asked him, about the session when he recorded the first version of Twist and Shout with the top notes, and, and Burt Burns was sitting there watching him screw this song up, and he said, I did that? I don't remember that. I wish I did. So I called my agent, and I said, look, you know, we're not going to get a book out of this guy. He remembers doing things he didn't do and doesn't remember doing things he did. <laughs> that's, absolutely, that's absolutely priceless. I should just quickly mention your fantastic Burt Burns biography, Here Comes the Night, one of your great books. Barney, you and I have written about so many of the same things. <laughs> I mean, you had one of the really original big pieces about Burt Burns. Was that Mojo? Yeah. In Mojo. It wasn't that long, but it was a, it it was was major. a piece about It Bert was Bert. major. And yeah. your book on Los Angeles was a, was a guide to my research. It was the first well, book I picked point. up. And then as long as we're here passing out some cheese, 
<laughs> this book, Hollywood Eden, it benefits immensely from the research available on Rock's back pages. Beautiful. This is good. This is, what is this? This is called log rolling, isn't it? Where we we tell you how much we love Hollywood Eden, and you tell us how much you love Rock's back pages, uh, uh, listen, and we both benefit. Keith Altam <laughs> took me to those rooms, right? Yeah, he took me to those rooms. He was there. He sat there. He told us what it looked like. He told us who was there. Yeah. And where where is an American going to find that in a library? Rocks sure, back pages. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I need to move on with some more of what's going in the library. <laughs> that, 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 that was a brilliant diversion, I have to say. Leaping forward to 1990, Stone Roses, John Squire, and Ian Brown. You know, they're a pretty ghastly pair of people. John Squire says, The average spandex-clad guitarist might be a really nice guy, a feminist even, but I doubt it, which is actually a fairly good point. But Ian Brown says, Bowie a hero? Oh, no, I hate him. Useless rubbish. His songs never meant anything to me. Well, you know, good riddance. Well, he's now, he's now covering himself in glory as Mr. Ant of Anti-Vax. That's right. So that's spearheading right. rock and roll's resistance to, <laughs> to vaccines. I mean, what a twerp. He's what an, a twerp. He's ghastly. This week, now, Maureen O'Grady interviews, and Barney, you've got to tell us about this guy, Stash DeRola. This is from Rave 1966. So tell us about Stash. Well, I mean, Joel may know more about Stash Klosowski as I as I think of him than I do. I don't know much about Stash other than he was a he was one of those debauched aristocrats on the scene in kind of swinging London who fell in with the Stones and others and corrupted people or was corrupted. I mean, it's a, he, he's fascinating figure. Do you know anything about Stash? Just what we've read. Print, he was a, like a prince, books. isn't he? He's like a prince, Mark. Yeah, no, in, 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 in this, he's the, the Maureen O'Grady, he wrote a piece, says that he was due to inherit 15 million pounds in then, then yeah which was a, like, i mean just, I, how much would that have been worth oh, then my god don't, jesus don't even i mean and he's, he yeah. says i've just bought a new coat made in 1718 it's the only thing i've seen that i like i mean it's, it's he, <laughs> he, he, i'm with him there he actually yeah. made made a couple of records you know he, he did have an attempt, a fairly feeble attempt at a, a so i've entered him as an artist in the library with the kind of activity. oh, that's fun. So, what does he really? What does he say to Maureen in the piece? I mean, what's the gist uh, well, of it? Well, I mean, it's, it's about it, his recording. It's it's about sort of how really groovy he is and how you know and how he really likes hanging around with all the groovy yes. people. That's all you had to do in those days. Moving on to '68 and this Richard Goldstein Van Dyke Parks piece. It's a really good piece. I mean, first of all, I love Richard Goldstein's writing. He writes about Van Dyke Beatty. And some of the quotes, through the use of creative energy, I want to give people an excuse to trust me and pay me. It's a lovely thing, and pay me. Um, this is absolutely around time. It's all about Song Cycle being released, this, this, this interview. What drags me most about pure rock is that it has all these things going on about being nitty-gritty, and yet it's encrusted with chic. I love that phrase. Encrusted yeah. with chic. Encrusted <laughs> with chic. Only Van Dyke, right? Only Absol- Van Dyke. Absolutely. And then Goldstein says, not since Gershwin has someone so completely involved in the pop holocaust emerged with such a transcendent concept of what a American music really means. Song Cycle is that album we've all been waiting for. An auspicious debut, a stunning work of pop art, a vital piece of Americana, and a damn good record to boot. So that's Goldstein's take on... Joel, I have to ask you, do do you think Song Cycle stands up after several decades? 
It's it's a quaint curio at this point. I yeah. I, I reviewed it recently just to see what sounded like refresh my recollection, and it mm-hmm. really is a quaint curio. You know, Van Dyke gave me a jacket blurb for Hollywood Eden. He loved the book. Oh, great! Oh, good! <laughs> oh, that's great! But he'll take oh, he'll it back. It. He'll take it back when he hears you describing Song Cycle as a, a curio. When oh, as, uh, no, and every- Van, Van Dyke knows. Oh, right, good. <laughs> I spent an amazing evening with Van Dyke at the Bohemian Grove, where he was both drunk and applying sublingual marijuana elixir <laughs> to his tongue, and he decided that he wanted to play every piano on River Road, where there are like 40, 50 camps. Each of them has a piano. And we went from camp to camp, and he would sit down and just play some florid, over-decorated piece. I'd say, what was that? Oh, that was Gottschalk. And so we'd go to the next camp. He'd play some other florid, over-decorated piece. I'd say, Gottschalk again? He goes, no, Woody Guthrie. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) How lovely Moving on Marianne Faithful interviewed by Glenn O'Brien For Interview Magazine in 1980 It's a classic Interview Magazine interview It's an absolutely unequivocal interview His question, her answer And O'Brien says How do you like the Pope? Marion Faithful says, he's a star. I saw him on TV in Ireland. He's extraordinary. And he says such reactionary things in such a sweet way that you don't ever realise he's doing it. It's <laughs> lovely. This, this, is, this is around a time of broken English, this, this, this interview. Is very, Fascinating. Very interesting po- point mm, in her career. I skip over David Keeps' interview with Madonna for Smash Hits. A mention of Danny Schroeder-Weitzman, an interview with a girl hip-hop group called JJ Fad, who I'm sure most of us haven't heard of. But who had like one? They were kind of one. Them. They were one-hit wonders. Their album was the very first album released on Ruthless Records, even before NWA. They were a very, very early Ruthless Records act, and they're lovely. There's these three girls, you know. They're they're just having fun. You know, probably didn't see a penny from those swine who ran Ruthless, Jerry Heller at all. Supersonic motivating rhymes are creating, and everybody knows that JJ Fat is devastating. We know you like us, girl, so you better get sterile, cause we are the home chicks that are rocking your world. Supersonic. Oh, the last one is Brandy, who's... That means nothing in England. She was a big R&B star in America. Yeah. Meant nothing, and, and a television star, and all kinds of other stuff. Means nothing here whatsoever. And the, her fierce ambition in this 1998 LA Times interview it's just it just crawls out of the page and she says when i walk into a bookstore i want to see my picture on the cover of every magazine like leonardo dicaprio that's where she was at that's my lot including like country file and and all the uh, other you know absolutely home and gardens you know <laughs> brandy she's a fine girl to quote looking glass do you remember, do you remember looking glass i i wish i didn't yeah brandy you're a fine girl anyway Moving on, in the interest of speeding up and finishing this damned episode, I'm just going to hand <laughs> straight over to Jasper. I'm just going to mention a couple of light-hearted live reviews to close things out, one of which is Mariah Carey live at Wembley Arena, and it just sounds like you know the most ridiculous spectacle you can imagine. 
you know, no expense spared on props, suspended cages, plinths that rose up and down, a table full of food, a double bed, a fake Miss World contest, dance routines, costume changes, the lot. Lisa Verico sees it for the times. Uh, this is in 2000. The entertainment began with a loud crack of thunder and what looked like a waterfall cascading from the stage. Against a pink sunset, Carrie rose up from a hole in the floor in a tight, backless dress with a neckline that plunged to her waist. Even Carrie looked worried. This is a new outfit, she explained. It's precarious. I have to be very careful. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And then another, another amusing live review is Lenny Kravitz. Live at the Roundhouse, Stephen Dalton, again for the Times 2014. The singer's Bono-style walkabout through the crowd during Let Love Rule, attempting to orchestrate a rousing sing-along, also fell awkwardly flat. He's not the Messiah. He's a very haughty boy. Very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> See what they're doing there. So that's my lot. Just wanted to mention those two funny things. Thanks, Jasper. Brilliant. Well, look, it remains for us to thank you so much for joining us today, Joel. It's been so interesting and such fun. Going back to that time and and your book is, is a, just a joy. Anyone who's listening, please go out and buy any of Joel's books, but particularly the new one, Hollywood Eden. Electric guitars, fast cars, and The Myth of the California Paradise, published by House of Anansi. Like yourself, I've been reading. I reread your Ultimate book the other day, Joel, which is Thank you. pretty brilliant. I mean, it's uh, eye-watering stuff, but it's very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep on doing what you're doing. By the way, yeah. has anyone reissued your Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stone oral history? Still in print. Is it still in print? Still it's, in it's print. Such a, yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It's, 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 it's absolutely great. That, that's my cred in the hood. <laughs> we should discreetly point out that we have all of it on Rock's Back Pages, with your blessing and permission, if you recall. Oh, you yeah. actually said we could, we could feature the whole thing on RBP. So it's there for anyone who might want to subscribe to Rock's Back Pages, and you can read Joel's fantastic or History of Stone, The Family Stone, and lots of other amazing pieces that he wrote. But it, yeah, it's time to say goodbye, Joel. Thanks for crossing, as it were, eight time zones to to get to London. I treasure <laughs> my friends in England. And oh, bless you, Barney. It's always great to see you and Mark and Jasper. It's really great to meet you guys over the internet and stuff. Pleasure to meet. But um, it's lovely, absolutely. Yeah, Barney. You we know. send you. We send you much love from London town. And we had real California weather here yesterday. I felt like I was in Los Angeles. It was so beautiful. But Mark, you're going to talk us out with the last clip. Can you just intro what this is about? Well, it's basically Dean Torrance talking about Bruce Johnson and Terry Melcher. Simple as what that. What could be better? What could be better? All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. And bye, Joel. See you soon, I hope. Bye, Joel. Thanks, bye. Thanks fellas. Surfing every day down at Malibu neath the warm California sun. So I drove down to the beach, and I'm sitting there in the sun. Just, it was just a beautiful day. Up comes Bruce. I hadn't really seen Bruce in about six or eight months. And plus, I hadn't talked to him much in the last couple of years. And we'd gone to high school together, uh, and so we'd known each other for a long, long time. So Bruce sits down, starts telling me how unhappy he is being in the Beach Boys. And he's at a creative standstill there, and he's just unhappy. It isn't as, as much fun as it used to be, and he thinks, since it's not any more fun, uh, I'm going to leave. He's thinking of leaving. So I said, look, why don't you come with me? I'm going to go see Terry. And he and Terry used to produce a lot of records together. 
and I got an album cover, and we should see the album cover, and uh, let's go over to Terry's. So Bruce said, hey, great idea, so we get our stuff together and leave the beach, go to Terry's. Well, Terry hadn't seen Bruce in a while. So we, we all arrived, and looked at the album cover, and that was fun. And then we started talking about Bruce being so unhappy, and, and then Terry was saying, well, how kind of a drag it was working on his album by himself. And gee, remember the old days when it was really fun. We just looked forward to going into the studio and it, everything came so easy. And you'd run from studio to studio and put out eight records at a time. And, and it was it was exciting. And it was fun. You were never frustrated mm. at all. You couldn't wait to get in the studio. Couldn't you know, when the time ran out, you oh, God. I couldn't wait to get back in the next day or whatever. And now it's a chore. It's a real chore. And it is that way for most everybody. No more books, no more homework to do now. Cause summer means fun, summer means fun. Summer means fun. That was Dean Torrance in conversation with John Tobler in 1973, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Joel Selvin. Hollywood Eden is published by House of Anansi and Joel can be found online at joelselvin.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Rocks Back Pages.